Good morning, Crosspoint. If you want to grab your coffee and come and join uh, us in worship. So if you want to stand up, we're going to start.
going to sing a new song uh, today, so just uh, come in whenever you feel comfortable. want to come up we're going to take an offering right now um, I'm just going to real quick uh, pray over that um, God just uh, use this offering to just further your kingdom and uh, we give joyfully um, this morning and uh, we just praise you and we thank you for who you are
as we are um, all broken and uh, that you are just so accepting and that you love us no matter what. We just give you all the honor, glory, and praise this morning, and we love you. Amen. Morning. Morning. My name is Joel Zare. Um, I'm um, one of the Crosspoint volunteers back in Sun Chasers. I work with my wife uh, in the five and kindergarten classroom. And I also teach in the large group uh, for a month every three or four months with several other volunteers as well. And so I just want to welcome you here to Crosspoint this morning. In a few minutes, I will have all the children come up and we'll uh, have a little time here in the beginning of the service. And then uh, Craig will come up after me. Um, I just want to real quickly say a couple things. Uh, during the month of August, we have this time where uh, we've opened up to all of you time to volunteer uh, and serve back in Sun Chasers on August 2nd and on the 9th and on the 16th. And so if you have any interest in that and, and serving the children uh, of this community uh, back there, I want to tell you it's a wonderful opportunity uh, from the three-year-olds all the way up to fourth grade. Uh, my wife and I have been teaching the fives and kindergartens uh, for almost a couple years now, and it's, it's just been an incredible blessing on my life. 
uh, the way they're so open and honest about everything they say, it's, it's very, um, it, it's just, it's a wonderful experience. And so if you have any interest at all, and you'd like to come talk to me after service, I will be around. Uh, if you have any fears of going back there and going, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do in the room with a bunch of these little kids, I'll uh, put your uh, mind at rest. Uh, they, they're wonderful, and they, um, they will um, love you for it, and they will um, be very receptive to anything you say to them. So please, by all means, come and talk to me. If you have any questions about that, there is a sign-up back there at Guest Connections. So if you're interested, uh, please take the time to head back there and, and uh, serve uh, in that way. Uh, so what I'd like to go ahead and tell you guys, then, is any of the kids, any of our sun chasers, if you guys can come on up front here, uh, and come on down here in the front with me, just like last week, if you guys want to make your way out of the aisles, bring your younger siblings with you if they're a little nervous. But you guys can come on, sit down right here in the front in this area. All right. Good morning, guys. Good morning. We'll try that here again once you guys all get settled, all right? All right. I'll try again. Hey, good morning, guys. Good morning. Oh, there, Max has got it. There we go. Fantastic. It's great to see you guys this morning. We're going to talk a little about uh, the same thing Vix talked with you guys about last week. Do you guys remember at all last week what Vix talked about? Do you remember what Manny was talking about? Yeah. Paul, that's right. He was talking about Paul, and Paul went on a lot of different journeys. And we're going to talk today about Paul's journey in Europe for just a couple minutes. All right, but before we do that, Every month when we're back there in Sun Chasers, our large group, we've got a key verse that we're working on. And our key verse for this particular group of sessions is from Romans. It's Romans 1.16. So I'm going to say part of it and have you guys say it back to me. Is that okay? All right, can you guys do it nice and loud just like we do back in Sun Chasers? Max, are you ready to lead the way? He's going to lead nice and loud for us. Yeah. Say the verse nice and loud, Joa. Uh, yeah, verse, Romans 1.16. That's okay. I think this is the first time we may have done the verse, too. So you guys are going to repeat after me. Can you guys say Romans 1.16? Romans 1.16. There you go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. That's awesome. We're going to talk about that gospel that Paul took all over the place, and specifically today to a few different places. So some of these names of these cities are a little weird. So can you guys help me say them real quick? Can you guys say Thessalonica? Thessalonica. Can you say Berea? Berea. All right. And we are going to also go to Athens. Can you say Athens? Athens. All right. So I'm going to tell you a little about Paul's journey all right, and then we're going to talk about our one key question for today. And you guys may know the answer to this, but I want you to wait and think about it. What's the answer to our question and why? That's an important part. And the question for today, the big question is, who deserves our worship? Who deserves our worship? Do you guys know what worship means? Guys, any ideas of what worship means? Joel, what do you think worship means? Worship, what's that? Worship God, all right. Trust in God and try and worship him the best you can. Carter, did you have your hand up? We don't remember. All right. That all happens to me all the time, man. All right. Yeah. God loves you. Absolutely. These are the, these are the things, that, the wisdom out of these children that I love so much. God loves you. And yeah, our worship, the, do holy things that God wants you to do. There you go, guys. So we're going to talk about who deserves our worship. So Here's our story for this morning. It talks about, first off, Paul and Silas. So Paul and Silas, they came to the city of Thessalonica. Can you guys say it again? Thessalonica. Got it. Paul went into the synagogue to meet with the Jews. That's what he always did. Paul talked with them about the scriptures. Paul said, this Jesus I am telling you about, he's the Messiah. Right? He's the Messiah. He's trying to tell them that he's the Messiah. Some of the Jews believe Paul, but you know what? What did some of them not do? Jackson? Yeah, they didn't believe. Some of them didn't believe. All right? And this is interesting. The Jews that didn't believe, they were jealous. And they formed a mob, and they chased Paul out of Thessalonica. And so he went to the next city. He went, do you guys remember what the next city was called? He said it started with a B. No, not Bethlehem. Berea. Berea. There you go. So he went to Berea. And there Berea again. 
Paul decided he was going to talk to the people there, and they listened to Paul's message. They studied the scriptures to make sure he was telling the truth, and many people believed, but what happened again? Some didn't believe. And yeah, they chased him out again, and so he went to Athens. And that's where we spend a little part of time of our story. He went to Athens, and he was really surprised by what he saw there. He saw the people of Athens worshiping many different gods. They had statues made to all sorts of different gods, and they were worshiping those different gods. And they had one statue that was for an unnamed god. And Paul said, you know what? I should tell them about Jesus. And so he told them about God. And he told them that they should worship the one true God. Right? And so he told them about Jesus. And you know what happened there? In Athens, what happened for some of the people? They believed. They believed in God, and they began to follow Jesus. Right? And so Paul told them about Jesus. He told them to turn away from their sin. He asked them to ask Jesus into their hearts, just like a lot of you guys have done. And Jesus forgave them of their sins. And when people heard about Jesus being raised from the dead, some of them laughed. They didn't think it was real, but some of them believed. Some of them followed Paul. Later, Paul went to Athens, and he went to the city of Corinth. Can you guys say Corinth? And he met two people there that next week you'll talk a little bit more about. He met a man named Aquila. Can you say Aquila? And his wife named Priscilla. Can you say Priscilla? You got it. And so next week you're going to hear a little bit more about them. But Paul went on many of these journeys, and when he told other people about Jesus being the Messiah, many of them did what? Believed. Many of them believed. All right? And Paul did amazing things on these journeys through the power of God. And you guys can do the exact same thing. Okay? We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We should be willing to tell other people about Jesus Christ and how he saved us from our sins and how he lives inside our hearts. So I'm going to pray for you guys that you guys will do the exact same thing Paul did. You guys will be missionaries. And you don't have to be missionaries in places like Thessalonica or in places like, what was the other town? Start with a B? You remember? Berea? or in Athens, but you guys can be missionaries right here in Eureka, and you can tell people you know in church and at school and at home and your friends about Jesus Christ. And so if you guys can fold your hands and close your eyes, we're going to say a little prayer, and then we're going to say our Bible verse one more time. Dear Jesus, we just thank you for this day. We just thank you for all these children that are up here this morning. Uh, Lord, we know no matter the age, no matter the time, uh, that, that we are missionaries for you and that we can share your good news and that we are not ashamed of your gospel, Lord. Uh, in all of our own ways, that, that we are reflections of you and that we can um, share your love to all those around us that we come into contact with daily. Just pray for these children, Lord, as they go out this week, that they are witnesses for you uh, and that their, um, their words will speak your truth. Uh, we love you, Jesus, so much. Amen. If you guys can stand up one more time, we're going to say the Bible verse one more time, and then you guys can head on back to your guys' seats, and we'll make sure you guys make it all back there just fine. All right, so you guys are ready. Do you guys remember what book of the Bible the Bible verse was found in? Romans. What, do you guys remember what book it's found or what, what chapter it's found in? 316. Oh, I think that's it. We're going to do Romans 1, 16. Okay? So can you guys say it with me? For I am not ashamed, ashamed. of the gospel. For it is the power of God. That brings salvation to everyone. All right. You guys are awesome. You guys can go back to your parents. Give someone a high five on your way back there. We'll see you guys back here next week. Thank you, guys. Good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here at Cross Point. I don't know about you as parents having all your kids in the uh, service, but I love family services, having us all together to worship together. Um, this morning, we are continuing our Wonderful, wonderful Things series, and it's based upon Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful, wonderful things from your law. The wonderful thing that we're going to be looking at this morning is God himself. What is your knowledge of God? What, do you, what comes to mind when you picture God? Steve Lawson has said that what you believe about God is the most determinative aspect of your life. It's the rudder that steers your decisions. It is our knowledge of God that shapes how we think, how we feel, how we act, how we live. 
A high view of God leads to high and holy, holy living. A low view of God leads to low living and a life absorbed with self. We live in a world of postmodern thinking today <clears throat> that pushes the idea that all beliefs are valid. If you believe it, then it is absolutely true for you. This kind of thinking has become so pervasive that we think we can have a smorgasbord view of God. God is love. I like that. God is forgiving. I like that. God meets all my needs. Yes, that's my God. And what we're doing is creating an image of God that is just an idol of God that we can live with. We come with this view of God like he's this grandfather in the sky that winks at sin and is there to cater to every need and want. We think we're created in the image of God, therefore God is just a little bit higher than we are. But we forget that God is transcendent. He is high and holy and totally other than his creation. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 93 this morning. In this psalm, we'll see that God reveals to us that he is sovereign, he is majestic, he is all-powerful, he is eternal, he is holy. A proper knowledge of God is that God is up here and we are down here. If that bruises your ego, then your ego needs bruised. Uh, psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. The first three words of this psalm establish that God is God. He is sovereign. He is in absolute control over all of his creation. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Man in his fallen state doesn't like this idea. This pride in our heart has the overwhelming desire to be autonomous. It's the root of our rebellion against God. We want the right to rule ourselves. If you think about it, we're born into this world as the center of our universe. Everything is about me, my wants, my needs, my will, my pleasure. And our world feeds this notion with slogans like, you deserve a break today, have it your way. And then there's Frank Sinatra's anthem, I did it my way, which is probably going to be the anthem playing in hell because that's the heart posture that got them there. We want the right to control our lives. But here's what the Bible says, Psalm 103:19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. God is sovereign, absolute ruler. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46, start at verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. God declares what's going to happen in the future before it ever happens. And it's not that God, just that God can see into the future. God is controlling everything that is going to happen in the future. He says, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. To what extent is he controlling everything? We see that in verse 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. To this extent, that God says, I want that bird from the east over here. I want that man from a far country here at this point in time to fulfill my purpose. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God is sovereign. He rules over all. He rules over all. He rules over all. He rules over all. All. No matter how you emphasize it, it means the same thing. God is a micromanager. He controls everything. A.W. Pink said, God would not be God if he was not sovereign. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things 
after the counsel of his will. We see here that God determined beforehand that he was going to do certain things and all those things he works after the counsel of his will. You might be asking yourself, but what about free will? Doesn't God give us the ability to make choices on our own? That's the subject of a whole different sermon, but for the sake of argument today, yes, God allows us to make choices, and we will be judged by those choices that we make, but those choices do not affect God's will and God's plan in any way. God doesn't react to anything. He knows the beginning from the end. Nothing, not even your choice, is outside of his control. This is kind of messing with your pride, isn't it? We see in Proverbs 16:9, the, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. We make plans, God directs our steps. Proverbs 19:21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. We make plans, but God will do what God has planned. Proverbs 21:1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Let's look at a couple of biblical examples of God's sovereignty and man's choice working together. If you remember the account of Joseph, I'll try to fit a 14-chapter account into a paragraph here. Um, Joseph's father, Jacob, had 12 sons, but Joseph was his favorite. This angered his other 11 brothers, so they sold him into slavery he gets taken to Egypt and then gets a good gig with Potiphar. And then Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him, and he gets thrown into prison. Through a chain of events, uh, he gets summoned into Pharaoh's presence to interpret a dream that Pharaoh had. And amazed at Joseph's ability and his connection with God, Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command in Egypt. Now a famine lasting seven years came upon the land, and everyone had to come to Joseph to buy food, including Joseph's brothers. When his brothers came before him, Joseph forgave him and ended up giving Joseph's family the best land in Egypt. But when Joseph's father died, his brothers were afraid that they were going to now act out revenge and retaliate upon them. Um, <clears throat> so they came gro groveling to Joseph, begging for mercy. And here's Joseph's reply in Genesis 15, or 15, 19, and 20. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. It was the brother's evil heart and choice that sold Joseph into slavery, but God's sovereign sovereignly controlled every detail to preserve the nation of Israel. God's sovereignty and man's choice. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10, we'll start in verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation. Here's God is going to use Assyria to come against a godless nation. That godless nation he's referring to is the nation of Israel who had turned their backs on him and started worshiping idols. And God's going to use Assyria as the rod of his anger against Israel to punish them and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it, Assyria, does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. God sent Assyria to punish Israel. Assyria, Assyria's mind wasn't, hey, we're going to be used by God here to punish Israel. Assyria had in their mind just to plunder and destroy a nation. Then you skip down to verse 12. We see, so it will be that when the Lord has accomplished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Here God 
sends Assyria to judge Israel and then judges Assyria for their evil heart. God's sovereignty, man's choice. One more, Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Jesus was ridiculed before Herod. Pilate condemned him to death. The Roman soldiers beat him and crucified him, and the people of Israel cried out for his crucifixion. And they were doing whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined them to do. And they will be judged for their evil choices. God's sovereignty and man's choices working side by side. How does that, how does that possibly work? Because he's God. You can be assured of this, the Lord reigns. If you turn with me back to Psalm 93... So far, we've covered three, ver three words in this psalm. You're lucky this is a family service. You may end up uh, needing to eat your kids' snacks before we're done here. Um, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Majesty isn't a word that we use very much, so let me give you a dictionary definition of it. Regal, lofty, imposing character, grandeur. Job 37:22 says, "Out of the north comes gold and splendor. Around God is awesome majesty." I'm afraid in a modern Christian in modern Christianity today, we've lost the view of the majesty of God. We forget that He dwells in unapproachable light, that when He speaks, as we see in Revelation, that He thunders with His voice, and the result is bolts of lightning. Isaiah 2.19 says, And men will go into caves of the rocks, into holes of the ground, before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. Any account of man experiencing the presence of the majesty of God results in absolute terror. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he goes on to describe the majesty of God. And what is his response? Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Man in the presence of God is instantly made aware that he is nothing like God. And he's acutely aware of his sin. Have you ever read the book, seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? In it, Lucy enters into a parallel world of talking animals. She's talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about meeting Aslan, who is, Aslan, who is the uh, Jesus figure in this world. And when she finds out that Aslan is a lion, she asks, is he safe? Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. If your God is safe... He is not the God of the Bible. He's an idol, a God of your imagination. The God revealed in his word is majestic. He reigns. John Calvin said, Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted in themselves with the majesty of God. Uh, back to Psalm 93, he has clothed and girded himself with strength. To be in absolute control, God must have absolute power. And where does he get his strength from? From himself. He has clothed and girded himself with strength. And how strong is God? We see in Revelation 19.6, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. God is almighty, all-powerful. And notice here again is associated with the fact that he reigns. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. 
This is an illustration of God's strength, the fact that the world will not be moved. Uh, If you look back with me in Psalm chapter 33, starting at verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. I want you to pause here for a moment and think about this. Before creation, there was nothing. No matter, no space, no time. Okay, I'm asking you to think of the impossible. You can't possibly think of nothing. But out of nothing, God spoke, and bam, the universe exists. In all its vastness and in all its detail, it suddenly exists because God spoke. That's the kind of strength that God clothes himself with. No wonder verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 93, 2. Thy throne is established from of old. Thou art from everlasting. The Lord reigns. He is on the throne of the universe. How long has he had that throne? From everlasting. God's eternal. He always was. He always will be. And we can kind of wrap our minds around always will be, always existing, but it's kind of hard to imagine no beginning, is it not? Our time-oriented minds can't quite grasp that. But remember, God created time. God lives outside of time. That's how his word can say that with God, a thousand years are as a day, and a day is a thousand years. The future and the past are every bit as real to God as today is. He is there now. He lives outside of time. He is eternal. Isaiah 43, 13, even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? God is sovereign, he is all-powerful, he is eternal. And at the end of this verse, he asks the rhetorical question, I act, and who can reverse it? The obvious answer is no one. How do you respond to the fact that God is absolutely sovereign? Your response will tell you a lot about your heart. Does it give you a sense of awe? Does it cause you to worship? Or does it make you bristle a little bit? The carnal mind rebels against the idea of a sovereign God. Remember, the root of sin is pride, and pride makes us think so much of ourselves that we desire to be autonomous. It rebels against anyone or anything that would deny our right to self-rule. And we see that in verse 3 here. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. The floods in this verse are a poetic way to describe the rebellion of man. We see the same idea in Isaiah 57.20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. And notice that for emphasis, the floods lift up is repeated three times in this verse. The floods have, past tense, lifted up, O Lord. The floods have, past tense, lifted up their voices. Voices personify the flood. The the floods lift, present tense, up their pounding waves. Throughout history and into the present, man has rebelled against the God who reigns. Here the floods picture angry men and nations rising up and rebelling against the Lord. But verse 4 says, More than the sounds of many waters and the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The rebellion of man, though it seems to have power and great force in this world, is nothing to the mighty God. 
If you turn with me uh, back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, we'll start at verse 1. The psalm pictures the rebellion of man and God's response. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You notice the, the rulers and the nations are taking their counsel, taking their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And we see in verse 3 the pride and haughtiness of man. They say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. To these rulers, God is just, in their mind, is just a little bit higher than they are. He is a foe to be conquered. But now we see in verse 4 the response of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. The rebellion of man is as nothing to a mighty God. Verse 6, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God will do exactly as he planned. If you go back to verse 5 of Psalm 93, we see the same idea that God's will will be accomplished, expressed here. Thy testimonies are fully confirmed. God's word, his testimonies are sure. He speaks clearly about his divine character. I could keep you here for hours, which I'm not going to, with verses that confirm God's sovereignty, his majesty, his power, his eternality. God's testimony about himself is fully confirmed. It's fully established. It's absolutely faithful. Holiness befits thy house, O Lord, forevermore. Of all the attributes given to God in this psalm, all of them fall under the category of God's holiness. The basic meaning of holy is to be set apart. As you can see by the characteristics of God given to God in this psalm, he is totally set apart from his creation. He is transcendent, nothing like his creation. God's holiness also carries with it the idea of perfection and purity. He is without sin, without flaw. His love is perfect. His wrath is pure. He is perfectly good. His goodness is not a standard that he holds himself to. He is the standard of goodness. And how comforting to know that the God who is sovereign and almighty is also perfectly good. Is he safe? No. He's not safe, but he's good. We see this aspect of holiness uh, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, where we get a peek into the throne room of God. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. In the presence of God, there is this constant reminder that God is holy, holy, holy. He is totally other than all his creations. He is absolutely set apart. His glory is indescribable. He is pure and all-powerful and majestic and eternal. So what are the implications of this knowledge of God? For those of us who are followers of Christ, what should our response be to a sovereign, majestic, holy God? One response should be humility. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. When we compare ourselves rightly before an all-powerful God, we quickly realize that he is all-powerful, and we are finite. A second right response would be worship. What is worship? Worship is honor paid to a superior being. Worship is not based upon atmosphere or feelings or emotions. Worship is not about what we experience or how we feel. 
You wouldn't know that by listening to Christian radio today. If you listen to the words of contemporary Christian music today, it's full of I, 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 me, me, me. What does God do for me? But understand this, worship is not about me at all. It's not about my feelings. True worship is based upon the response to truth. The more we understand the true character and nature of God, the greater our worship will be. Again, we see the people in the Bible who have come face to face with the presence of God fall to their faces before God. It's not a problem for them to worship. If you and I were thrust into his presence right now, his glory, his majesty, his holiness would take our breath away. In his presence, man is acutely aware that God is a superior being. And when we renew our minds in his word to a true knowledge of God, the natural result will be to honor him as God. What we believe about God affects every aspect of our lives, even our worship. Another response to a sovereign God would be peace. We probably all know Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In today's pop theology, they would probably interpret this verse that God takes the lemons in your life and makes lemonade out of them. But remember, God is sovereign. He reacts to nothing. He doesn't see those things in your life and think, wow, I didn't see that one coming, but I'll make something good out of it. No, God is the ultimate cause of the lemons in your life. But it's for your good and his purposes. If you remember, God was the ultimate cause of Joseph being sold into slavery. But God worked it together for Joseph's good and his purpose. Where we go wrong is assuming that God's highest good for us is our pleasure and our comfort. I'm afraid that isn't the case at all. We live in a fallen world where death is the norm and sin is pervasive. And Jesus told us, in this world you will have tribulation. In this world we will face all kinds of painful stuff. But it's interesting that before Jesus told us this, that in the world we will have tribulation, he said, in me you have peace. No matter what the world throws at us, be it tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or peril, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's working his plan for our good. And as believers, the result will be us ruling and reigning with Christ in his kingdom. We can be sure, assured of this as he promises he is working for our good and he is sovereignly in control. As children of God, the knowledge of God's sovereign reign should give us peace in every circumstance. For he controls everything and as his, and as his child, everything will work out for our ultimate good. What about those of you who aren't Christ followers yet? Do you see yourself in this psalm? You're the angry floods lifting up your voices against God. You're hostile toward God. Now you might be thinking, whoa, 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 I'm not hostile toward God. But here's what Romans 8, 7 says. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And here's the heart of sin. We don't want to subject ourselves to God's rule. I want to be in charge of me. That's pride. That's rebellion against God. And it's the root of our sin, and we're all guilty of it. And the Bible says the just punishment for our rebellion against a holy God is death. Eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire forever. Does that seem a little harsh to you? Well, let's consider the crime. God made you and everything that you enjoy. 
All things were created by him and for him. And you continue to exist because God continues to will it. Colossians 1.17, I'm not just making that up. And now you would tell your creator, I don't belong to you, I belong to me, and I will do as I please. That's treason against your creator. Big crime, big punishment. And we're all guilty of it. We're all under the penalty of death. The good news is that the God who is rich in mercy made a way to release us all from our death sentence. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the form of a man to live a life without sin so that he could die in our place. The innocent for the guilty. He laid all of my sins upon Jesus. He poured out his wrath for my sins upon his son so that justice could be served and I could walk away free from the guilt of sin and right before God. And the thing is, we can't do anything to earn this salvation from our sins. It's a free gift. How do we receive this free, free gift? Repentance and faith. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He took our sins. We get his righteousness. That's absolutely amazing. And repentance. And this is the part we stumble over. We must repent. Turn from our sin. From our rebellion against God. Romans 10.9 puts it this way. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the essence of repentance here, I believe. Jesus is Lord. You deserve to reign over my life. I cease to rebel against your rule. The psalm spells out clearly that God reigns. The question is, how will we respond? Rebellion to his reign or falling to our knees and worshiping our creator? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me here a minute, and we're going to pause, and I want you to be completely honest with yourself. What is my response to the God who reigns? If you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and submitted yourself to his lordship, would you consider doing that right now? The Bible says that one day every knee will bow before him. He can be your judge or be your savior. And the fear of hell is a good motivation, but a better motivation is a broken heart that realizes that it has rebelled against God and yet God loved us so much he was willing to die in my place. What is my response to the God who reigns? Father, I pray that you would be drawing people to yourself today. Change their hearts. Grant them repentance. Grant them faith. Change their eternal destiny today. And for those of us who have received your grace, I ask that the knowledge that you reign over all of your creation would cement itself in our hearts and our minds. And may the knowledge that you're always good give us peace in every circumstance in our lives. To you alone be the glory. Amen. You guys have a good Lord's Day today.